This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Um, so thank you for allowing me to be back here again. I also want to greet you on behalf of my church on the north side of Austin and our family of churches. Um, I love our family of churches. I, I love the chance that I have to visit churches. I've actually spent the last 10 days, a good part of it, in your beautiful state. I was actually with the Franklin guys um, just last weekend. They had their youth retreat, and I was able to go and serve them. And uh, so I've just been in Tennessee for 10 days. It's been glorious. It's, it's really nice to be in the cool weather um, coming from Austin. So the guys in retreat, you stepped out of the plane. You're like, oh, it's fall here. This is fantastic. Um, so loved that. Um, love the the privilege that we have as a family of churches to, to sing the same songs, to love the same gospel, to love the same doctrine of the church and church community. It, regardless of what Sovereign Grace Church I visit, there's this sense of love for one another, love for the gospel, uh, love to see the gospel go forward. So thank you for being a part of that, and it's a joy to greet you on behalf of those churches uh, this morning. Um, well, if I can ask you to turn in your Bibles... To the Gospel of John this morning, John chapter 12, I have the privilege of reading God's Word, which as you know comes to us with authority and power and transforming grace, it's, it's unlike any other word. In the midst of a world where we are bombarded with opinions, this is not just an opinion. This is God's word. So let's come to it with expectation this morning as I know you do every week. John chapter 12 verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled. ...with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples... ...he who was about to betray him, said... ...why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii... ...and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor... ...but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag... ...he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. When I was a boy, we had a family Christmas gathering and my grandfather, who is now gone, was there. And the family knew that after the chaos of presents and greeting one another and so forth, there was a very special present that was going to be, planned to be, the highlight of the morning. My, my aunt had found an old picture 
of his father, a man who had been dead for many, many years at that point, an old picture and had it blown up very nicely and set in this nice frame and wrapped it and everything. And so when that gift was given to him, the whole room knew what was coming and there was a stillness, a, a hush about the family. We're all there, cameras are out, we're watching, we're wondering how, how is he going to react. And then he unwrapped the present and came face to face with his father. And my grandfather was a, a, a very loud, authoritative, very confident kind of man. He was not prone to vulnerable expressions of emotion. Other expressions of emotion, yes. Not vulnerable expressions of emotion. But he just sat there, stunned, staring at him, exclaiming over and over. Finally, when he could get a full sentence out, with deep emotion, he said, that was the best man I ever knew. It was a powerful moment. It was a powerful family moment. This is a powerful cosmic moment, but the principle is the same. Our affection reveals what we treasure. Our affection reveals what we treasure. My grandfather's affection, respect for his father was so profound that he couldn't help it. It came out in that moment. His deep and abiding respect for his father, who he had not seen for years, came out because that's what he treasured. That, he said, was the best man I knew. Well, here we have a, a picture of something even more profound. We have a, a picture of what it looks like when affection reflects the treasure of the greatest man anyone has ever known. We have a picture of what it looks like when affection reflects the treasure that he is. And it, it comes to us, I think, to ask us the question. This morning, as God's word come to us in real time this morning, what is our affection for Jesus Christ? What is our treasuring of this man? Does our affection for him reflect his worth, his value? Is he, if you could put it this way, precious to us? It's actually a question that the 19th century pastor Octavius Winslow, unfortunate name, but a really brilliant guy, Octavius Winslow put it this way when he talked about pastoral insight into the health of a soul. He said this, a felt conviction of the preciousness of the Savior has ever been regarded by enlightened ministers of the gospel as constituting a scriptural and unmistakable evidence of the existence of divine life in the soul. And in moments where neither time nor circumstance would admit of the close scrutiny of a theological creed or a nice analysis of spiritual feelings and emotions, the one and simple inquiry upon which the whole matter is made to hinge has been, what is your experience of the worth of the Savior? Is Christ precious to your heart? 
Let's ask ourselves that this morning and allow this passage, what it wants to do is to increase that preciousness of Christ in our heart. Is Christ precious to your heart? There are three main characters in this story, so we'll organize the preaching of it along the lines of those three main characters. The first point I would make is Mary's affection. Point number one, Mary's affection. We see here the context Context in verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So instantly we receive the motive for the affection she is about to display. The, the motive is Lazarus is alive and Jesus is in her house. Lazarus is alive and Jesus is bodily present. The motive is evident. Lazarus, you can reread just that section, just the paragraph previous and before that where Lazarus was in the tomb for three days. He was irrevocably dead. And Jesus stood at the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. And the man in grave clothes came out of the grave, her dear brother. And there he is sitting at dinner. Perhaps one of the most understated sentences in the New Testament. It says in verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him. I find that to be quite the understatement. What shall we do? Well, let's feed him. Let's feed him for sure. It seems like we could at least do that given he was dead and Lazarus is now alive. And since Lazarus is sitting there at dinner, Mary, Mary is motivated Mary is motivated. Jesus was indeed, in their eyes, the resurrection and the life. And if you've ever had a dear friend or family member who has gone to death, you can imagine the overwhelming affection that would be flowing out of Mary's heart in this moment. Her grief had turned to joy. In this culture, there would have been still the painful memories of wailing mourners around the tomb. Now irrelevant because Lazarus is alive. The symphony, if we can put it this way, of the cursed world had been echoing around the fields of Bethany, but then a new sound broke into that morning when Jesus commanded him to come forth, and now here he is, the living brother reclining at table. That's, I think, the motive of Mary's affection. This, this is the embodiment of the resurrection and the life. She is motivated. Then we move to the measurement of her affection... John describes it in detail. Look at verse 3. Mary, therefore, in light of this affection and in light of the presence of Jesus, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Now, this is meant in this culture to be a shocking measurement of affection. A pound of pure nard is unthinkably extravagant. To, to anoint someone in that culture with oil at all was unnecessary. It, it wasn't a necessary gesture. You might wash the feet of travelers as a gesture of hospitality in those dusty roads. But to anoint with oil goes beyond the need. To anoint with nard goes far beyond the need. To anoint with a pound of pure nard is almost ludicrous in the extreme. It's a year's worth of wages close to it. ...that she breaks and pours on his feet. A year's worth. I mean, the, the smell would have overwhelmed the room. As John writes, the fragrance of the perfume filled the house. 
It's meant to shock the readers with a sense of overwhelming extravagance, overwhelming cost and expense. But then perhaps just as surprising is the mode of her affection. She doesn't just anoint his feet with the perfume. Notice there, she wipes his feet with her hair. The hair of a woman in that culture would have been a symbol of dignity and glory. To unbind it would have been to cast aside any sense of her position in the room. She was likely a wealthy woman since she owned this perfume. She was not a lowly servant. And to wash the feet at all was the job of the lowest slave in that culture. Not not a high-born slave. A low slave in that culture would have been the one to wash the feet, understandably, because of the roads and so forth. This was a, a low position. Here's Mary, this woman of wealth and means, not only pouring out her expensive ointment, but taking her, if you could put it this way, her greatest cultural dignity and using it to showcase the honor of the feet of her Lord. It's, it's meant to display extravagance, utter indifference to her own dignity, her own reputation, an utter lack of concern for decorum or for her reputation or her standing. It's as if she says, everything I have, my dignity, my reputation, my wealth, it is all, all worth only expressing a moment of honor. I'm not even going to save it so I can sprinkle nard upon him every time he comes to the house. No, it is my, the greatest things I have are, are worth this single moment in his presence. It's an extraordinary display of affection. It would confront the room. You, you can almost imagine the sense of just overpowering sense of this extravagance lavished on Jesus. This dignified woman on her feet, wiping his feet with her hair, almost a a desperation that he would receive the honor that she believes he deserves. That's the picture we get of Mary's affection. It kind of blazes out of the passage and looks at us. And if we can put it this way, it sort of fills the room every time we read this passage. You see, this affection that Mary has for her Lord. But not everyone in the room is delighted. Quite the contrast. Judas has an objection. That's point number two. Judas objection. Judas objection. Judas is here identified as one of his disciples. But John wants to alert us about the true nature of his heart, because he adds this parenthesis, he who was about to betray him. John inserts these hints throughout the passage of the context of this, and actually this context is clear from the preceding paragraph as well, because we find out that the high priests are looking for Jesus and sending out spies to kill him. But Judas is there as the one of the disciples inside the group, and, and he is offended He is offended at this extravagant display. But you want to notice, look down at your Bibles and notice this. Judas' question sounds much more religious than the reality of his heart. John tells us the reality of his heart in just a few moments. He's a thief, the passage says, and he likes to take money 
out of the treasure bag. So Judas is actually only thinking of the potential this would have had for his own thievery. But what comes out of his mouth is this apparent concern about the poor. Why was this ointment not sold and given to the poor? Think of the good we could do for the poor. Why be so extravagant towards Jesus? I am offended, Judas seems to say. We want to notice that it is possible for a cold heart toward Jesus to seem generous and even moral in what they say, even while their heart is disgusted by the very thought of extravagant worship. Notice that what comes out of a cold heart is often more religious and whitewashed than the reality. Now, I think in this passage, Judas, in this objection, this why functions as a warning to us and to every reader. A warning that sometimes I think we neglect. Judas was not a Pharisee. He he was not outwardly rejecting Jesus. He just gradually allowed selfishness to consume his soul. It's not that he publicly rejected Jesus. It was that he privately maintained himself on the throne of his affections. He didn't publicly denounce Jesus. He just privately, one coin at a time, declared that he was more worthy of treasure than Jesus was. And because of that, I find, sadly and grievingly, I I have more in common with Judas than I would want to think. Now, obviously, Judas plays a unique role in redemption history. He's the means of Jesus' betrayal. Jesus said of him it was better if he had never been born In one sense, Jesus kept Judas next to him precisely because he knew his mission was to die. So anytime you see Judas with Jesus, it should remind you that Jesus intentionally died on behalf of his people. But for my own heart and for our hearts, I think we have to ask the question. Are there one coin at a time treasures in my heart? that are gradually displacing affection for Jesus. Judas didn't just abruptly betray Jesus. It wasn't abrupt. It was actually shortly after this moment. We might even say from a treasure standpoint that perhaps this was the final straw for him. That the loss of this potential personal revenue is what motivated him to go to the high priest and say, as he literally said, what will you give me if I hand him over to you. Little by little, his greed, his desire for personal treasure had replaced any even superficial respect for Jesus to the point that it consumed him. It dominated him. The reality is that the human heart only has so much room for affection. And when we or our greed or our treasures or anything of this earth, when it begins to consume us little by little by little, one coin at a time, outweighing the scales of the worth of Jesus, eventually it will come to the point where we also are shocked at extravagant displays of affection for Jesus. Why? And we certainly wouldn't join in them. You don't notice Judas, and for that matter, you don't notice the rest of the disciples saying, can I, can I pour that as well? Here's what I have to give. 
I can't believe I get to be at dinner with Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. Here, here's what I have to give Mary. Thank you. Well done, Mary. No, no. There's a sense of, doesn't that seem a bit much? A bit extreme? Let's be even-handed, shall we? Why, Judas says, that why comes out of a heart that has been dropping coin after coin of personal idolatry to the point it was just a matter of time. That's the warning for us. It won't always be the case that we will just abruptly deny Jesus. Very unusual that that's the case. We're just humming along as his disciple and then abruptly we decide to reject him. No, usually it's the case that little by little by little, some other treasure has been hoarded up in our heart. And there is no room left for extravagant affection for Jesus. It's a warning to us. It's a warning to watch our heart closely. What other treasures? Treasures of gold? Treasures of reputation? Treasures of pleasure and fun? Perhaps good things. What other treasures are one coin at a time eating up the capacity for affection we have in our heart such that when we come to Jesus we find little left to give other than formality and formal religious feeling. Sometimes Christians ask the question, I, I want to feel more for Jesus. I, I, why don't I feel? I believe all the right things. I've said all the right things. And the question I often want to ask is, tell me about something you do feel passionately about. Is it possible that you need to give some time away from that thing so that there is room in your heart? You, you are not infinite. I am not infinite. We can't endlessly store up treasures and then find there's another infinite treasure for Jesus. No, is there things you are passionate about that perhaps there's a place for saying, I, I don't think I should give so much attention there so that I have affection left for Jesus. It's, it's worth examining our own hearts. Perhaps you're like Judas, and, and it is money specifically, but perhaps not. Perhaps it's sports, or perhaps it's reputation, worldly success, earthly security. Wouldn't it have better, been better for Judas if a couple of years before he had come to Jesus and said, Jesus, I, I have to confess, I, I took some money out of this for myself. Please forgive me. And I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm tempted. I, I, think, I think it'd be better if someone else takes this job because I, I'm, I'm worried that I'm consumed by, by greed and I, I don't want to give in to that anymore. I, I just want to focus on you. Wouldn't it be better for us to even in the early stages of dropping coins in our own personal bag to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm concerned that this area in my life, it's, it's using up too much affection. It's becoming too much of an important thing for me and I want to make sure it doesn't, it doesn't take me away from you. So, so Lord, here it is. You take it for a season or a time or you diminish it in some way so that I can make sure that my chief and highest and greatest affection is always available to you. It's a good warning to us. If we see a hardness in our heart that resembles Judas, ask ourselves, I think we ought to, ask ourselves the question, what do I deeply love? And do I love it enough to give it to Jesus? 
It's good to say about that thing that we love the most in this world. To the Lord. Lord, even if I could have none of that, I would still love you with all my heart. Judas is a warning to us. But what I am grateful for about Judas' presence in this passage most of all is that his question reveals, reveals the high point of the passage and the most important person. Person number three, third point, Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus answers Judas. He answers Judas' objection... And he essentially calls his bluff. He penetrates Judas' heart by saying, Well, Judas, you always have the poor with you. If you are so concerned about them, you are certainly able to help them at any time. Because he knows that is not the real motive of his question. But Jesus' answer, I I would say, is the, the exegetical high point of this passage precisely because he agrees with Mary. Leave her alone. Now this is a very important exegetical point. Look down at your Bibles and just read that phrase. Leave her alone. Let her keep it for the day of my burial. Leave her alone. What is Jesus saying and why does that matter? I think it's tempting for us to read this passage and to be distracted by respect for Mary. And we ought to have respect for Mary... She was an extraordinary worshiper and follower of Jesus. However, according to Jesus, she is not pouring out something that is unusual. She is doing what ought to be done. Do you see the difference? We might think of Mary like, well, she's just one of those, you know, emotional people. And I have them in my care group just like you do. They're emotional people. They cry at everything. It doesn't, somebody could hand them a drink of water, they would be weeping in gratefulness. And you come on Sunday, and the songs don't even start, and their hands are raised, and they're bowed, and they're moving, and you're thinking, we haven't even started yet. Those are the merry Christians. God bless the merry Christians. Chill out from time to time. Merry Christians. And then we have like serious-minded Christians, and that's how a lot of us are. We're good, solid Christian people, and we have to live with some Marys in our life that are a little excessive and a little weepy-eyed and a little dancey all the time. But I prefer to be a serious-minded Christian, and God bless you, and you'll get extra weepy crowns in heaven, but I am going to follow Jesus this way. I, I, I think that is to miss the point. Jesus' answer doesn't indicate, listen, it's Mary, Judas, give her a break. Her brother just died, raised from the dead. It's an exceptional moment. He doesn't reference Lazarus at all. He says, this is what she ought to do because of my death. Actually, the the perfume of death is the only thing that is stronger in this passage than Mary's worship. The passage begins, if you notice, with a very important reference from John six days before the Passover. 
John, in his master literary stroke, has been using the Passover, that time when the Israelites celebrated their redemption from Egypt, and they symbolically sacrificed a lamb to remember that time when God passed over their sins, and a lamb died instead of their future as a nation. It's a time when they remember God choosing to pass over them, and a a lamb to die in their place. They remembered that. Well, John has been weaving this through his gospel all the way back at the beginning when John the Baptist saw Jesus. He exclaimed to the crowds around him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now he's been preparing us with this reference to Passover. He says six days before what? Before the Passover. This is the week. This is the week when the sacrificial lambs are being herded towards Jerusalem. This is the week when the priests are sharpening their knives. This is the week when the blood will be poured out. And symbolically, any reader who knows his biblical history is noticing that reference again and again. And noticing John seems to be connecting what Jesus is about to do and the death of the Passover lamb. So when it says in this passage, six days before the Passover, we're to think... What is the connection here? And then when Jesus says, let her keep it for my burial. John is inviting readers who are reading this after the death of Christ to see clearly. Why is Jesus in a unique way worthy to receive this affection? Why is this not an extravagant, unique worshiper, but rather an extravagantly unique savior because Jesus is about to die on behalf of his people? In other words, from John's perspective, Mary is worshiping better than she knew. That's the point Jesus is making. Let her keep it not primarily because of Lazarus, but for the day of my burial. And he gives another hint. The poor you will always have with you, Judas, if you really were so concerned about them. But you will not always have me. It's like John drops these hints throughout the passage. Listen, the main reason that this extravagant affection is right is because this one who is the resurrection and the life is about to die. The main reason why this worship is right is that the life is about to die. Mary gave better than she knew. She knew Jesus' power over the grave, but not that he would go to the grave himself. She had seen him conquer death, but not surrender to it for her sake. She had seen him speak to death with a word of command, but she had not heard his voice commit his spirit to the Father and receive the crushing blows due our sin. So she worshipped better than she knew. And any reader of John, and certainly any Christian, must agree with Mary's passion and must say, yes indeed, Mary, your affection rightly expresses his work. It's not that you're unique. It's that he is exactly that worthy. Indeed, they would not always have his body because his body would be broken and entombed and then raised to the skies. And we now cannot anoint Jesus' body, but this passage comes to ask us the question, 
is the Savior who died to give you life precious to your soul. How do you know if he is? Evaluate your affection. Does your affection reflect his worth? Now, all of us fall short of his worth, but it's still the right question for us to ask. Is it increasingly reflecting his worth? Is it a concern of your heart that it would more and more and more reflect his worth? Is your outpouring, your lack of concern, my lack of concern about my reputation or my dignity or my wealth or my treasure, is it reflecting his worth? Is the word on the extravagance of our worship, leave them alone, let them keep it for the lamb crucified for their sins? Is that the word on our worship? Is that the right conclusion? That's the conclusion of this passage, not good job for Mary being really excessive and over the top. No, the word is, that's what worshipers ought to give him. Because that's how worthy he is. And specifically because he's the lamb who suffered for sinners. Because by his death he brought life. Because because of his brokenness we were made alive. Because when he went into the tomb we were able to come out of the tomb. And therefore Lazarus and Mary and every formerly spiritually dead person in here should come out singing and declaring, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Savior who died for sinners. Worthy is the one person who is indeed the greatest person we know. How? Precious is the Lord Jesus to us. Let me make a couple of applications for how I think we ought to express our affection. Our weekdays and our Sundays. Our weekdays, we ought to be expressing affection for him as the primary goal of each day. The primary goal of each day. The the goal that gets us excited more than anything else. The goal we can't wait for in each day ought to be in practical ways and worshipful ways and devotional ways and obedient ways to express affection for Jesus. That ought to be the fragrance of our life because he is that worthy. Our every day ought to be an offering to the Lord. Whether we're doing our charts at work or we're doing the laundry at home or we're reading our Bible or scripture, that that ought to be something we just can't wait to communicate. Several years ago, my family, my wife and I, finally bought a dog for our children. My wife had a nine million dogs when she was growing up. She, she wasn't keen on getting another dog, but she's like, well, we have boys. We have to get a dog. It's just like parental obedience or something. So we have to get a dog. So we got this dog. And if you have a dog, which many of you do, when they're puppies, you know, you're training them and so forth. So we, we still keep a dog, our dog in the kennel at night. But when it was a puppy... You have to go down in the morning. Somebody would have to go down and let the puppy out and to go outside and so forth. And it was so striking. And if you have a puppy, you know this. How excited this dog was to see us coming down in the morning. I mean, it is a God-given gift to puppies. 
we would come down. And it's not as though we had done anything to earn this, you know, niceness. We come down. I mean, if a dog could talk, it would be like, I'm so excited to see you. I can't believe it's been so long. I don't know what you were doing, but I've been sitting here waiting to see you. And I'm just at the gate, and can you please let me in? I just can't wait, and the tail is going, and I just, I love being with you. There's nothing better than being with you. I love, I, I, I'm sorry I've been away from you, this darn cage. I couldn't get to you, but I, I love being with you. And you know what's ridiculous? I'm convicted by my dog. Because I have a much better master. And that should be me. I'm so glad to see you. I can't wait to be with you. If you'll let me, and he will, I'll spend the whole day at your side. We'll do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. I'll be with you. Wherever you go, I'll go with you. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it with you. I just want you to know that's how worthy you are to me. That's how precious you are to me. Our everyday lives ought to be, not because we're some unique, extravagant Christian, but because he really is that worthy. Whether we're reading or praying, whether we're driving, Christ and his glory ought to be what is most exciting to us. Lord, as I as I transition now to go into this meeting, Lord, be glorified, be with me, strengthen me. Lord, I, I, I have to correct my child now. Be with me, may I give you glory. Lord, I have to have a hard conversation with my spouse. Lord, come, come and be with me. Show yourself worthy in my self-control and my affection and my love. Lord, I, I get to go to a, a community group tonight. My, my body is tired, but I want to encourage the saints. Lord, be glorified, be with me. Lord, I, I'm tired from a long night. But Lord, I, I want to read your word. Speak to me, Lord. I, I'm ready to be with you again. Our every day ought to be perfumed with the worth of Jesus Christ. And also our Sundays. Our Sundays when we gather ought to be overflowing with the fragrance of the affection of the church. Brothers and sisters, one of the things I love about our family of churches is that historically, pastors a lot older than those of us that are here, uh, led us to make this a priority. And, and I pray it will always be that we don't come just to recite truth, but to recite truth in a way that we are expressing the worth of Jesus Christ. And that ought to be a goal on Sunday. When, when we gather, I know it's a goal here. It's a goal in my church. May it always be a goal. That we're not just stating what is true. We're, we're telling him, this is how much you are worth. 
And with our, our voices and our bodies and our, our money and our hearts, we are, we are saying to him, this, this, Lord, is, is how much you are to me. This is how I want to express that to you. Our Sundays ought to be filled with the fragrance of our affection. If, if a guest walks in, what they ought to be aware of is, I, I don't know exactly what's happening here, but these people clearly are more excited about the person they're singing about than any person I've ever seen excited about anything else. It, it's good for us even to measure at times. Are there other things, even physically, that, that produce a greater level of enthusiasm, evident affection than the worship of Jesus Christ? It, it ought not to be so. There are other things that we use our bodies for and our voices and so forth, but not, nothing ought to exceed in, in evidence the worth of the Savior. It ought to be clear on Sundays that the, the highest affection, the greatest worth, the greatest treasure is Christ and Him crucified. Christ, the Passover lamb. Christ, the resurrection and the life. Christ, who is beyond all earthly treasures. Christ, who has risen from the dead. Christ, who still bears the marks of our salvation. Christ, who is worthy beyond all worlds to receive all worship and treasure. Let it be clear that His church on this world values the worth of Jesus Christ and proclaims that worth in weekdays and on Sundays as the highest treasure of their soul. Spurgeon, to conclude, urges us to do just that. He says, come, dear friends. Do you feel that kind of emotion in your hearts at this time? Do you even now feel that so perfectly has Christ won the verdict of your understanding? So completely has he bound in silken fetters every moment of your affections that you need to be doing something which shall have but this one aim, to express your love to him who has made you what you are. Indulge the emotion, crown it with action, and continue it through life. In this point, be not slow to be imitators of the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Oh, sweet love of Jesus, come and fill our souls to the brim and run over in delicate, personal service. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, turn our eyes towards you. Lord, crown your glory in our hearts with the highest affection and praise. Lord, cause us to see you as you really are and to pour out our souls and our lives towards you. Lord, reveal to us again the gift that you are as the Passover lamb. Lord, your willing choice to go to the cross. Lord, just a few short days after this meeting, your willingness to hang there on our behalf. Your willingness to bear our sins. Your willingness to purchase our life at the cost of your death. Lord, let us see your worthiness. And let us sing and say, You are the greatest that I know. Receive the glory, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. 
To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.